To hear the full episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We could not do any of this without you. If you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up copies of Health Communism and A Short History of Trans Misogyny at your local bookstore or request them at your local library and follow us at DeathPanel underscore. And I also want to thank the people that have been sending us pictures of Jules's book and Artie and I's book together. We love to see it. Please send us more if you have both books. We would love that. And today I'm here with my co-hosts, Artie Vierkant. Hello. And Jules Gill-Peterson. Hi. And the three of us are going to talk about how to talk about gerontocracy. It's an election year, and here we are in February, staring down the barrel of November. One thing that's been really top of mind among liberals and in the press is, is Biden too old to run again? Should he be replaced? Can he be replaced? Are we really doing this again with this guy against the other guy again? And they're both so old. It's been really interesting to watch this whole discourse unfold, especially as someone who studies debility, disability and impairment, of which, of course, aging and shifts in cognitive capacity are pretty central And ultimately, this reveals some of the core values of the American state that are often un- or under-examined. And so we're going to get at that today. But while liberals argue amongst themselves, chasing circles around whether Democrats need a new candidate or whether even asking that question is, quote, too damaging to Biden's chances, that mere discussion of cognitive capacity will ruin Democrats' chances, it's clear that the through line, the underlying issue that influences all other discourse remains this initial question of, is Biden too old? Is it possible to armchair diagnose him with some form of cognitive debility? Or is the mere fact that polling shows a significant number of people think that Biden is too old to run again damning evidence enough to warrant swapping in a new candidate at the last minute? So for those who have not been following this closely, this all may still sound familiar. There was a similar discourse around the 2020 election. Headlines in 2020 noted that, quote, Trump and Joe Biden are the oldest nominees for president ever. And there were plenty of assertions about cognitive decline thrown around by both parties last time. But this month, the argument has resurfaced and taken on new intensity following the release of a special counsel report on February 8th that stated, quote, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury as he did during our interview with him as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory, unquote. So since then, this discourse has really been front and center with liberal commentators like Ezra Klein and Nate Silver stating that it has really kind of pushed them over the edge to consider another candidate. And then, of course, on the other side, other liberal commentators respond with indignance at the mere discussion of Biden's cognitive capacity at all. So for our purposes today, much of this sort of Democratic Party infighting isn't really important. There are very real reasons to desire an alternative to Biden. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they have nothing to do with Biden as an individual, nothing to do with his age, and nothing to do with his cognitive capacity, etc. So 
really ultimately has everything to do with his administration's policies, as we've been discussing for literal years at this point on the show. But at the same time, this discourse has also been really indicative of how we discuss cognitive ability, cognitive impairment, debility, and aging, particularly in relation to political agency, power, and social position. So today, we're actually going to get into this morass, talk about this discourse, and examine how liberals have been discussing this and what, if anything, we can actually sort of learn from the centrality of this age discourse right now? Yeah. And I think I want to just pause on a couple of those points that you made at the end there, because I think it's important to say a few things from the outset. The first is that, you know, one, when a lot of liberals talk about this, I think, you know, they say quite literally something, something Biden is old and showing signs of some form of impairment, or they say it less politely than that. <laughs> um, and they add, you know, and that's not ageist, by the way, you know, Ezra Klein, for example, mm. in his piece um, that got libs so mad said, quote, another argument I see is that this is ageism, that this is an unfair thing to point out about Biden. It is age discrimination. And I have actually seen people make this argument. Age discrimination is illegal in the workplace, but it is not illegal in the electorate. If the voters are ageist and Biden loses because of it, there is no recourse. You cannot sue the voters for age discrimination, unquote. Um, and John Stewart and his return to The Daily Show that also got libs very mad was more blunt saying, quote, that is not being ageist. That is being human lifespan ist. Unquote. And <laughs> Welcome back, I think, John. Uh, we're laughing because that's the same thing, obviously. <laughs> um, and I think it just bears saying, you know, it's not inherently ageist to talk about a person's age, just like it's not inherently ableist to talk about disability or debility, which I think is the assumption that leads liberals to say shit like differently abled or whatever, because they think referring to disability in and of itself is discriminatory. But just because raising Biden's age isn't inherently ageist or raising Biden's gaffes is not inherently ableist doesn't mean that in practice, you know, many or most people don't go there anyway. Um, which kind of gets me to the the second point that I just wanted to, again, sort of highlight from what B just said. First of all, I want to make clear that we're not going to be in any way defending Biden here. Uh, we're going to be just kind of talking about what this discourse reveals to us, I suppose. But I think it's just important to kind of note, again, from right at the top, if you're coming at Biden from the left, we have so much more <laughs> to hit him on than how he speaks, acts, or talks, or mm -hmm. thinks. Biden should be replaced because he's a bad president, right? <laughs> yeah. Biden should be replaced because in October he gave a full-throated green light for the genocide of Palestine and has not let up since. Biden should be replaced because they completely failed to act on abortion after Roe was overturned, while Democrats were in control of not just the White House, but also the Senate and the House. Biden should be replaced because they pivoted from their campaign promise of no more kids in cages to no, comma, more kids in cages, exclamation point. Biden should be replaced because by February 2022, just one year into his presidency, he had already overseen more COVID deaths than happened under Trump. And even still, his administration were calling COVID a pandemic of the unvaccinated and working to peel back the last remaining mask mandates. And if you want to really talk about his age, you know, let's look at how his COVID policies have disproportionately killed people in his own age group. Mm -hmm. Um you know, aging is something we can all hope to live long enough to have to deal with. But Biden himself has ensured a lot of people won't, you know, or if we want to talk about disability, let's talk about the people who have long COVID because of his policies, right? Mm -hmm. I could go on. But we that's what we have other episodes for. Um, but this is the thing, like, I, I think, I kind of think in part, this whole conversation 
is somewhat a proxy conversation exactly for how bad of a president he's been um and that partially liberals can't bring themselves to really admit that i mean in ezra klein's piece for example he twists himself in knots to say how much he likes biden and oh it's just his age and then he mentions you know the bad poll numbers are worrying and shouldn't he be doing a super bowl interview or whatever (laughs) um but there are so many reasons basically to say no to biden and i think it's very interesting that among all of them this seems to be the one that liberals are taking most seriously for the moment mm-hmm. and most comfortable with right no it really strikes me i mean I'm glad you mentioned that it's sort of a proxy conversation it also seems like i mean the, the larger question of how even how the term gerontocracy has kind of enjoyed a media renaissance in, in the <laughs> last couple of years mm-hmm. it's certainly focalized on biden but obviously it's a way of talking about a wide array, particularly of federal officials and politicians in very senior positions of power. And it just one thing I, I, I've been sort of trying to, to wrestle with getting ready for this conversation is like it seems like part of what's happening is that there are I mean, even the term gerontocracy is supposed to sort of be some kind of critique, right, about uh, about unequal distribution of political power or the idea that there's a certain kind of ruling class that doesn't represent people or that's advancing its own interests. And there's sort of like a much larger set of questions and frustrations and anger and critiques of the of the ruling class that kind of get condensed. And it sort of, it seems really interesting to me that the version of it, that kind of incites the most response is when it all gets like actually personified and turned into this like anxious discourse about disability when it's kind of gets like embodied in one person and becomes Mm. this sort of bizarre conversation about optics that's kind of trying to imagine that we know what's going on inside one person's body uh that's like become that's sort of holding water for this like huge discontentment with the way that representative democracy here, you know, advance a very narrow set of interests that seem in some way to correlate to the fact, maybe it's never clear to me if like, it's it's that people in power are old, but also that people in power want to stay in power for many, 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 many decades and never seem to want to retire, right? Like all of that is being sort of transformed and condensed here into a question of, is there some sort of, yeah, cognitive impairment uh, or some sort of, uh, you know, aging related process going on biologically <laughs> in this one man's body, right? Uh, it's just sort of, that that seems like so... That just seems so important to me, the way that this vast constellation of real political issues, yeah, is getting boiled down to something so, so uh, small. The scale gets really small and also gets into this, you know, weird, weird world of armchair diagnosing or, yeah, the sort of more, I don't know, the the self-styled, more reasonable liberal version, which is like, well, I'm not really armchair diagnosing. I'm just looking at the polls and they have me scared. (laughs) No, absolutely. And I mean, ultimately, what this sort of requires is to engage with really like what is the ideology of ability that underlies Mm -hmm. American society and what role does it play also in determining how much of a person you are in the eyes, not just of other people or commentators, but also legally speaking, too. I mean, one of the things that I think is really at play here is at the very core of what is being sort of obfuscated by this discussion, right, is that ultimately, like in talking about aging, right, in talking about 
Biden's cognitive state, whatever, you know, the assessment of it is, right? What ultimately is sort of being debated at the end of the day is essentially sort of who is fit for this role, right? And what is the principle of exclusion for this role of president, right? Of sort of president as like king of the world, king of capitalism, CEO of America, right? Daddy. <laughs> yeah, da- daddy. Yeah. Uh, what is the sort of principle of exclusion for this role? Right. And part of that is at its core, engaging with the liberal idea of who is a citizen and who is not a citizen and what qualifies you as a person and what makes you, you know, what's called in like bioethics of disability, a post person. Mm. Right. Which is at this point where mm. you are sort of perceived as being so far from a quote-unquote person uh, awareness, right, of, of sort of full cognitive capacity, that you become a post-person. And, and that ranges from people who are in persistent unconscious states, right? We call that vegetative states, uh, particularly in the United States. You know, we compare people to vegetables in the kind of framework, right? And that's the extreme example of a post-person. But in terms of just regular aging, this is also a really common designation that begins to be applied based on perception of someone's cognitive capacity. And that can range anywhere from putting someone in a nursing home to, you know, taking over their finances and things like that in terms of legal regimes, right? But it also relates to sort of like what someone's social and political role in society is, right? Mm -hmm. And so really at the kind of core here, what liberals are kind of grappling with is like, does Biden's perceived cognitive capacity violate this fundamental social contract at the heart of post-war U.S. liberalism, right? Which is the idea that like every person earns their citizenship by sort of paying in to the system, right? And by being a quote-unquote productive person throughout their entire life, right? Like a quote-unquote normal functioning individual that pays into society is kind of what is at the core of what gives you membership in our society, right? And so ultimately, cognitive capacity, you know, especially becomes this measure of whether or not someone is quote-unquote capable of honoring the principles that the central conceptualization of what liberalism and our democracy, quote unquote, are for, right? Like, is Biden, quote unquote, capable is for some people, um, especially, you know, it's clear in in the ways that like people like Ezra Klein, um, Nate Silver are framing it that, you know, what they're kind of grappling with is like, does the proliferation of people who are significantly older in government represent a problem with the ordering of our society and of the mm-hmm. bordering around, you know, whether or not someone should be able to be in this role. And so I think it's really important to talk about it both in terms of ageism, right, but also in terms of theories of power and how our state and how our governance and and how ultimately the sort of U.S. project is orienting itself as well, because ultimately we are a very discriminatory society towards um, people who are elders. In particular, the U.S. treats older people like they are especially disposable. So it makes a lot of sense that this is so central. But that doesn't just come out of nowhere, right? Like It's not just sort of like a natural phenomenon. And it's often treated as if, you know, quote unquote, cognitive decline, um, which is, you know, maybe we can sort of get into some of the framings and the ways that this is being discussed, because there's a lot (laughs) that can be revealed in just sort of looking at the language that's being used to describe this and the ways that people are talking about. But 
you know, within that, that becomes the disqualifying factor for Biden as a citizen, not the genocide, not the lack of action on COVID, not any of the things that he's done for decades, like from the the war on drugs to the prison industrial complex to any of the social policies to the border, right? These are actually things that he's fulfilling as daddy capitalism, as the CEO of America and the king of the world, right? Like those are actually the things that the leader of the United States is supposed to do as part of their job function, right? And ultimately, you know, that for someone like Ezra Klein and Nate Silver is not disqualifying. And it says a lot about the commentators themselves, right, that this is what they choose to focus on, because this also, I think, relates to a very kind of neoliberal idea of what equality is and how the U.S. sort of engages with the idea of, you know, the post-civil rights movement, liberal welfare state. So well said. I mean, I feel like like so many, so many liberal discourses, this one is sort of restorationist, right? It's fantasizing about a wonderful moment of imperial liberalism <laughs> that never really existed uh, in the form that this wish would wish it had, you know, in the mid 20th century that we've somehow gotten away from that. Or even it's just a simple fantasy uh, about the Obama presidency that gets sort of mapped onto age as if that is sort of standing in for the kind of perceived lifespan of, of American empire itself. Not to push that metaphor too far, but I just feel like there is this kind of you know, recurrent thing we're always talking about on this show where we're trying to understand the operation of liberal thought and conversation in the face of resurgent fascism, that it's so often appealing to remember when everything was just great. <laughs> everyone was so reasonable. Science was science, right? And everyone was young and vigorous and politicians were young and vigorous and were exactly incarnating that perfect citizen. And everyone agreed that it was great, right? Uh, it does. It does feel... Like there is that sort of fantasizing going on here instead of, uh, yeah, instead of the direction right. that we want to go, which is digging into <laughs> what, what, all, what is actually at stake in, in framing things this way in the first place. To hear the full episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You'll get access to this and the rest of our catalog of patron-only episodes. And be the first to get a new patron episode every Monday when it drops. With love. The Death Panel.